The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, we begin today with a quote from Plutarch was writing about Alexander the Great in the moments after Alexander had won a decisive battle in 333 B.C. Quote, When a small casket was brought to him, which seemed to those who were taking over the possessions and baggage of Darius to be more precious than anything else, he kept asking his friends which of the things worthy of high esteem seemed most fit to be deposed in it. And when many of them made many suggestions— he said that he would depose the Iliad there and keep it safe. End quote. Like the Bible, the Iliad and its companion the Odyssey have been on the shelves of conquerors and commoners in the Western world for an almost unfathomable length of time. Unlike the Bible, we ascribe the Iliad and the Odyssey to a single author, Homer, although the nature of Homer has been and is contested. Was this person an individual or a committee, an artist of genius, or more of a scribe who recorded an oral tradition? Who exactly was Homer, and why have the Homeric epics proved to be so enduring? We'll talk to an expert on Homer, Robin Lane Fox, plus have some Halloween bonus content from the editor of the Penguin Book of Witches, today on The History of Literature. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to this here little podcast, a Jack Wilson special. Everyone, happy Halloween for all those who enjoy this holiday. I'm certainly one of them, although it's kind of in the category of zoos and baking cookies for me, something I most enjoyed when I was a little kid and when my kids were little kids. Those are the best days, seeing them dress up in their little goblin outfits. I hope you have some good Halloween experiences ahead of you today and tomorrow and tomorrow night. And then we close the chapter on October, my favorite month, and start heading for the holidays. Speaking of which, and witches, it's time for you to start thinking about books to go on your holiday wish lists and buying plans for your friends and family and yourself. I've got a couple for you today. One is the Penguin Book of Witches. We'll have the editor here for a brief discussion of witches soon. And the other recommendation is this book, Homer and His Iliad, by our guest today, Robin Lane Fox. Here's another quote. We started with Plutarch. Here's a, here's a more contemporary quote from Oliver Stone, director of Platoon and Wall Street and JFK, a fascinating filmmaker. You know, have you ever read the essay Hemingway's Wound and Its Consequences for American Literature by Malcolm Cowley? It's a great essay, at least in my opinion, and at least in my recollection. I haven't read it for years. I remember enjoying it at the time. But the title is what sticks in my mind, especially when thinking about Oliver Stone. Hemingway's Wound and Its Consequences for American Literature. Well, Oliver Stone's experience in Vietnam and its consequences for American cinema. There's an essay for you. There you go, young film scholars. That's a title that points you toward the way, toward the essay that will make your career, or at least get you an A on that paper, hopefully. In 2020, Stone had this to say about a night battle on Vietnam's border with Cambodia, which he experienced in 1968. Quote, We worked in rotating shifts. Two men, three men, swinging the corpses like a haul of fish from the sea. No person should ever have to witness so much death. It had been like a dream through which I'd walked unharmed, grateful, of course, but numb and puzzled by it all. It reminded me of passages in Homer, of gods and goddesses coming down from Mount Olympus to the bloody battlefields at Troy to help their favorites— wrapping a mist or cloak around them and winging them to safety. End quote. An extreme 
a moment where life, often so ordinary, is pushed to an extreme, where what you encounter is so beyond the pale, it almost defies human experience and language. And what did Oliver Stone reach for in order to help him locate himself, to figure out who he was at that moment, and how this experience could ever be explained or reconciled with what he knew about history and humanity? He turned to Homer. Homer addresses the extremes of battle, of wrath, of leadership, of revenge, of beauty, of death. And so, if you're like me, a fan of literature and always eager to learn more, and if you hear there is a man who's been studying and analyzing and teaching Homer for more than 50 years and who still weeps over passages in the Iliad, there are two things you want desperately to know. Who is this person and what can he tell us about Homer? Well, Robin Lane Fox is that person. He's written a book that shares his insights into Homer. And we'll have our conversation with him coming up in a little bit. But first, a preview of sorts. Catherine Howe stopped by to talk about her new novel, which is all about pirates. And she is the person to write such a novel. She's an expert in literary pirates, thanks to her work editing The Penguin Book of Pirates. We'll explore the world of pirates and her new novel after the book is released in November. We'll bring you that full Uh, conversation then. But because we were talking, she and I were talking in October, I couldn't help asking her about witches. Because we're in October and we're planning to run this episode when your book comes out in in November, but since it's uh, Mm -hmm. October for you and me, I was wondering if I could also ask you a few questions about witches. You can always ask me questions about witches. What sparked your interest in witches? Well, so when I was a teenager, my aunt was doing some genealogical research and she found that we were kind of laterally descended from two, at the time we knew about two, Salem witches, Elizabeth Proctor and Elizabeth Howe. And of course, Elizabeth Howe is not a huge surprise because that's my last name, but Elizabeth Proctor, who was dramatized in The Crucible, was a bit of a surprise. And I'd never really given it much thought beyond thinking that it was just incredibly metal and badass. Yeah. <laughs> I'd never given it a lot of thought until I moved to the North Shore uh, to Essex County, Massachusetts, which is close to where Salem Salem is in Essex County. I moved there in graduate school. I was an American Studies graduate student, which is like interdisciplinary American history. And we were living in this house that had been built in 1705, which was just mind-boggling to me at yeah. the time. And one afternoon, it occurred to me, two details about this house kind of sparked my imagination in thinking more deeply about witches. One was that over the back door, which actually went into the room that we used as our bedroom, was a tiny little horseshoe charm covered in paint. And of course, I was familiar, we're all familiar with horseshoes as a symbol of good luck. But it was kind of fascinating to me to find one in this unexpected place. And then the second thing that got me thinking about witches in a deeper way was sitting on the floor one day, and this house had these wide pine floors because houses from this period are built inside out from how we build houses today. Today we build a house and we frame it in pine and we put hard oak on the floor. But in the 18th century, they would frame a house in solid oak and they'd put pine, wide pine on the floor. So you have this bouncy pine floor and these massive oak tree beams that keep the houses standing up. And I was sitting on the floor one day with my hand on this beam and thinking about the fact that some foot had been on that floor who had been present watching while the witches were hanged at Salem, Mm -hmm. because I was one town over from Salem. And the hangings, just like the hangings for William Fly, were a public spectacle that everyone traveled from all over the land in order to see. And I was thinking, like, what does it feel like to live in a time period where having a witch trial is a rational thing to do? Right. And I felt like all the stories I'd seen about witchcraft were either they treated everyone in the past as idiots, like in the crucible, right? Yeah. Or they treated it as cute and magical, like 
Disney witch or something. Yeah. Yeah. And it was neither of those things. These people were not stupid. They just occupied a radically different intellectual and religious outlook from ours. Right. They really believed that they were doing the right thing, most of them, while it happened. These weren't like frenzied uh, people on the outskirts of society who would hold a witch trial like out in the middle of the woods or something. These were like the leaders of the community, the judges and and the governors. The leaders of the community, and with great deliberation, I might add. Right. I mean, they they didn't jump immediately to the law. They called a doctor first when the girls started behaving strangely. They had public fast and prayer days, seeking divine guidance for understanding what was going on. You know, it was actually hard at that time to meet the burden of proof legally to have a successful witch trial, which is one of the reasons that historians look for witches in the historical record, not just in trial transcripts for witchcraft, but in trials for slander. Because having a reputation as a witch, when you were in a small, insular community, and your economic well-being was 100% dependent on having a good relationship with your neighbors and in your community, If you had a bad reputation, that could have very meaningful economic consequences for you and your family and your children. And so if you had, if someone was spreading rumors about you as a witch, it was not uncommon to defend your good name by suing them for slander. And so, you know, there are a lot of people who show up, you can kind of perceive their ongoing bad reputation, even if they never rise to the level of actually being tried as a witch. And so my first novel, The Physic Book of Deliverance Dane, came about because I was asking myself, if magic were real the way the colonists actually believed it to be, I wanted to imagine who would do it and why they would do it and what it would look like. And so I have, for the first many novels that I've written, I have kind of a magical realist perspective. They're not fantasy novels but they are realistic novels grounded in historical research that nevertheless try to take the Puritan worldview seriously. Mm. Now, you also edited The Penguin Book of Witches. What Mm -hmm. kinds of historical accounts were you able to draw upon, and, and what would we see in The Penguin Book of Witches? The Penguin Book of Witches has a number of trial transcripts and a number of kind of different accounts of witches from different periods. It focuses mostly on colonial North America. Um, It has some excerpts of witch hunting manuals. In true American fashion, when Salem was unfolding, immediately someone wrote a best-selling tell-all book about it. And the best-selling tell-all book about the Salem crisis was Wonders of the Invisible World, which was written by Cotton Mather. And then almost just a couple of years after Wonders of the Invisible World came out, a critical review of that book was also published around 1705 called More Wonders of the Invisible World, which was a skeptical account saying, no, this is, this is completely wrong, and these are all the reasons why it's completely wrong. So the Penguin Book of Witches has these differing perspectives. It also includes apologies. There were two apologies issued for Salem. One was from Samuel Sewell, who had been a judge. And one was from Ann Putnam Jr., who had been one of the afflicted girls. Mm. Although, interestingly, Samuel Sewell came to apologize not because he stopped believing in witchcraft or stopped believing in the devil. He actually came to reevaluate his role on the court of Oye and Termine because he experienced a series of wonders and marvels, including having, he, he believed, having his house pelted with stones from the sky. So the Puritan worldview and relationship with folk magic and beliefs in wonders and marvels changed gradually. But Samuel Sewell came to believe that they had all suffered under what he called a delusion of Satan. So he didn't stop believing in the, in the devil. He didn't stop believing in the reality of witchcraft. He stopped believing that they had been correct in their assessment of what had gone down. Okay, that was Catherine Howe, editor of The Penguin Book of Witches and The Penguin Book of Pirates, both of which are available now at bookstores near you, probably available <laughs> near you, probably in your pocket if you're carrying a smartphone. 
bookstores in there. You can't get much closer than that. So we will have our full uh, interview with Catherine in a few weeks where we talk about pirates and about her novel. And now Robin Lane Fox, here to take us back through the mists of time to an ancient text and an even more ancient battle. We'll have that after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Robin Lane Fox, Emeritus Fellow at New College, Oxford. His books include The Invention of Medicine, Augustine, which won the major Wolfson History Prize, and The Classical World. He's here today to discuss his new book, Homer and His Iliad. Robin Lane Fox, welcome to the History of Literature. Ah, oh, thank you so much. So we've done a few episodes recently on Shakespeare's authorship and the questions about his authorship raises, and I keep coming back to the example of Homer. We have the works themselves, and it's curious to think what we would gain or lose by learning more about who wrote them. So I'm really eager to talk to you today about the Iliad and its illustrious author. Yeah, well, it's a different case to Shakespeare, but it remains a perennially fascinating question. Yeah. So before we get to Homer, let's start with the Iliad. Do you remember your first reading of it? Absolutely. Um, I was 13 years and uh, three months old, mm. and I was made to, in class to read Iliad Book 6, The Wonderful Scenes of Hector Returning to Troy. Mm. And I remember that my hands were still stained with mud from the football pitch that, of course, is English soccer. Yeah. And yet, somehow, the Greek, as we were reading it only in Greek, in front of me, magnetized me. And I thought this is the most extraordinary thing I have read. And I was lucky enough to be able, age 13, from uh, school teaching, I wasn't alone, there was a class of 15 of us, to be reading Homer in the original. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then it went on, and as extra books at school, we had to do book 22, absolutely heartbreaking, The Death of Hector, and then on our own time, book 24. And I would just like to say I was at Eton College. You hear much about Eton College, about apparently very smart people lazing their way through life, <laughs> making a mess of the British government and wearing tail coats. But actually, the living heart of Eton is a really marvelous education. Mm. Uh, and this book actually grows ultimately from that. Right. Now, I understand this is something like 60 years ago that you were 13 reading it for the first time. It's very generous. 63. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you have, I'm sure you have changed quite a bit, or do you still feel like you're, when you open up the pages of the Iliad, that you're in some sense that 13-year-old boy all over again? Uh, no, I don't think that, but I think that all the layers of life superimpose themselves. Yeah. And between my reading, I cannot help but see uh, from time to time similar circumstances, people I've known who are last passed on and no longer with us, situations I remember, and of course, I am perhaps an even sharper reader mm. than I was age 13. But the, the root of the things that appeal to me 
are not so different. What is different is the attempt to put labels on them and put them into words for people. Right. So what do you most admire about the Iliad? I know that's a big question, but... (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, the first thing I have to say is that Homer was a genius, Mm. and I admire genius. There is no argument about that. I would say the extraordinary paces, I would say, of the verse, the beautiful interplay of speech, characterization, and action, and overriding it all, underlying it, the relation Homer accepts between the gods in heaven and the actions of the heroes and their women on earth. It's as if we are being given privileged access to what the gods say and think, very, very bold. So we know, though the heroes and the others on earth do not, our plans and outcomes which the gods have foreseen and will bring about. And that leads to one of the great qualities of the Iliad. Many people know the phrase dramatic irony. That goes back to Greek tragedy. But it's only there because there is an even greater uh, irony, Homeric irony. That's where the great tragic authors learned it. Mm. And this sense that the famous English critic C.S. Lewis years ago described in passing, the Iliad is a poem of ruthless poignancy. Mm. And it is. And I have to add, so is life. Believe you me, when you get to 76, you realize that. And that's one of the reasons that it comes home to us so, so hard. And the other is this strange thing, that in Homer, everything is typified um, with recurring uh, adjectives, epithets, famous, the wine-dark sea, mm-hmm. uh, honey-sweet wine. It's all so boundingly optimistic. They're seen at their best. Everything is, there's nothing that says, you know, the, the stinking meat that had gone bad or something. There's never right. that. Meat is always the best. Until going along and everybody's aiming for the best. And yet we know from privileged understanding of what the gods have planned that it is not going to come out as a one-sided good for them. And that is agonizing. Yeah. I'm passing over what obviously is so powerful to me and all classicists, the amazing use of the Greek language and the beauty of the meter and all of this. I understand that there may be some listeners who will master ancient Greek. And could I just say you can master Homeric Greek in two years? It's not a, a sort of brick wall of a thing. You have to study for 60 years. But it has this wonderful combination of speed, pace, pathos, irony, and somehow memorable characterization and beauty. Right. You know, I never thought about the role that the gods play specifically in terms of a narrative. And and we're used to a novelist, let's say, who would have a lot of tools at his or her disposal, like Mm. an omniscient narrator, or they can jump around in time, or they can get right inside of a character's mind and so on. But it sounds like maybe the gods are fulfilling a kind of narrative importance or they they serve a purpose that way. You're absolutely right. I would say that one wing of um, Homeric criticism, of course, there's so much written about the poem, uh, looks at them as if they are a poetic device. And there's some truth in that. But I actually argue differently that though, of course, um, Homer is phrasing their words in poetic terms and presenting them in that way, he is not departing so far from what Greeks really assumed about their gods. It's not just some poetic religion that is way out on the margins, Mm. and real Greek religious practice, let's call it that, is very, very different. The two interrelate at that period much more closely, though Homer is selective. So it's not just what a great German critic described, sublime frivolity. They are being put to a narrative use but they are not invented in this way simply for narrative. Mm. Actually, I wish I'd said that, but you've just made me say it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So you mention in your book that it's not easy to convey the Iliad's power. 
And I've asked you to sort of do it in a, a couple of sentences here for the podcast purposes, but I'm I'm wondering if you could walk us through how your book approaches that question, and what what approach does your book take to helping readers appreciate the Iliad? Uh, right. Well, uh, the book is really has three main parts. The first part is, of course, hypothesis, argument, uh, sifting of possibilities and probabilities to answer the great questions of where, when, and how Homer mm. composed. I wouldn't be writing them if we knew. I'm the first to accept that. But I've come to feel that one of the many answers given, not mine isn't particularly new, but perhaps it's less often put into print nowadays, is the most convincing. And then the second and the third parts are really could be subtitled, Why the Iliad Makes Me Cry. Mm. And I give my highlights. I give you the top 10 books. And I hope with little touches of observation about my chosen 10, which are not quite always picked up by people. And then I go through uh, values, characterization, all of which what it means to be a hero and what Homer is implying about the heroes. And then I turn to what I call parallel worlds and focus particularly um, on three. The gods, as I've discussed, the world of women. Mm. How does Homer uh, present women? How does he see them? We've had several novels recently, um, all of them quite successful, which have taken Homeric female characters out of the Iliad and told the story from a feminist perspective through their eyes. Mm -hmm. All very fine, but that isn't Homer. And actually, the results are not true to Homer's insight. But you have to have quite a sense of ancient Greek and the poem to grasp that. And then lastly, what I call the natural world. One of the striking aspects of the Iliad are the comparisons, the recurrent similes. And I counted up all the lines you could make an entire book and a half, slightly more of the Iliad, simply out of the similes. Mm. And they present something very different. Again, it becomes clearer talking to you. It's always the way <laughs> than when you're writing. Um, in the poem, all the main actors are aristocrats. They're upper class heroes. Uh, the, the, uh, the rank and file are there, but they're not at the center. In the similes, there are no aristocrats as the main agents. They are ordinary people insofar as anyone is ordinary. And they are shown in what we would call natural settings, storms, busy with their work or whatever. And yet they're being used to compare this very aristocratic, heroic story. Aspects of it are compared to something closer to um, great moments in everyday lives. Mm. And both Homer's um, observation, which is very, very strong, I'll come on to that, and his use of the similes are very important. They're like a counterpoint to the poem. If you take them out and you take out the women and you take out much of the speeches and the heroes' own hatred at times of war, you can turn it into a poem that some people recently, often um, women readers, have said it's about toxic masculinity. It's not just about any one thing. I really hope my book is a riposte to what I call attempts to read Homer as if he was one-eyed or to come at the poem with an axe to grind. Right. I had no axe to grind. Do you think that the similes and, and the way that there's a connection to the the working class people, so to speak, is... Does that read to you like a way of an, an oral storyteller trying to keep his audience's attention? Or do you see in that a way of commentary on the world? Or what do you see as the motivation for that? Those are very good points. Um, very quick of you. They're both. Mm. I do think that the poem is orally composed. Mm -hmm. I think every Homeric scholar agrees it was orally performed. But my central point, and I pick up other uh, scholars who perhaps represent a widespread view, but it, others who write on the, it want to have something new to say, so you read more about the opposite view, which I believe to be wrong. What's so striking with the similes is that they enlarge beyond a single simple point of comparison. And you can't pick through them and say each little bit in these four or five lines exactly matches something in the poem. Homer presents to you 
Um, they don't work like that. A comparison and develops it so vividly. And I think he's doing that because he's composing. He can't get every single cross-reference in a way that Virgil might. Mm. Writing. And he holds the audience. That's absolutely right. But secondly, it is an often poignant counterpart mm. to the world of the battle and the um, heroism and the fighting around Troy. But I certainly see it as fitting, not just oral performance, but actually composition in performance. And I'd like to draw a, a really important distinction here, which often has been blurred. It is not that Homer had memorized his poem mm. uh, and gone forwards like an actor on a stage with a very long part, 15,000 lines. Yeah. No, he is actually composing it as he went along. That's my view. That is a view people have held. But mine is very much reinforced by comparative studies, and particularly, I lay emphasis on the epics of Central Asia. And I've had the good fortune to hear performances in Kyrgyzstan. I don't know Kyrgyz. I didn't have to. They were so mesmeric. Um, the delivery, the engagement, the passion of both of the performer, um, who was not memorizing, he's composing as he goes along, often for um, tens of thousands of lines, and also the audience. They were carried away. They're, they're tremendous occasions, and they're alive. It's one of the few still living traditions of composition in performance. And it, I must say, it brought Homer really again to life. I don't think misleadingly either. Mm. In America, everybody rightly admires the great scholar who came attached to Harvard, Milman Parry. And Milman Parry went from California and off to Yugoslavia, as it then was, and studied the, the Bosnian poets and so forth in Yugoslavia and wrote some classic papers on Homer's oral composition. He couldn't go to Central Asia in the 1930s. He knew about it. It would have actually been an even better laboratory for his fieldwork. Hmm. Right. Okay. Let's take a quick break and then come back with more. I want to dig in further into the author of this amazing work. Okay, we're back with Robin Lane Fox. So let me set forth what I was taught in college. And this Excellent. would have been the uh, late 1980s, early 1990s. And that was, we don't really know a historical Homer. And in fact, Homer might be a, a composite work developed over the centuries by oral storytellers. And it sounds like you have a different view. But when did that view take hold? And, and how widespread is that idea today? Um, very difficult, I think, to say how widespread. There's often a silent majority that mm. all your listeners probably belong to who think, no, no, I don't believe all that. Look, the silent majority believes that W.H. Shakespeare was W.H. Shakespeare right. <laughs> of Stratford. He doesn't think, you know, that it was um, the Earl of Essex or Bacon or somebody. Right, we right. hear all about that because people write crazy books on it and then you interview them. There's obviously been a, a view of that Homer is one poet, but already in antiquity, there is the view that it was a sequence of separate short songs that were, were, that were stitched together. Mm -hmm. I actually think this is um, fundamentally wrong. I think two things are wrong, um, though they've been very illuminating. One is a tradition widely taught, particularly, I think, in the States for very good reasons, the magnificent work by Milman Parry, um, who thought of the poem as a traditional poem evolving from collections of songs, often one of his starting points. Um, and it is a poem largely shaped by tradition and less by individual genius. Mm. I don't accept that. That's one. Uh, that's been brilliantly carried, carried forwards by his successor at Harvard, Gregory Nash, who's uh, been the, the most brilliant exponent of this view. 
And that, I think, has been very important. And secondly, is the feeling that it seems a bit bitty here and there. It seems to one minute go forwards uh, and then to go off in a different direction. I mean, a very simple thing. We have a duel that's going to finish the Iliad, we think, um, a very important one between, uh, between Paris and Menelaus. Paris has run off with Helen, Menelaus, his wife, and it comes to nothing. And then in books um, um, seven, we have another one. Uh, we have Hector against Ajax all over again. Um, it's as if there are too many duels, do you see? Yeah. Um, and people think, well, why not? Couldn't it be little um, separate poems stitched together? This has been sometimes related by people to their view of the composition of parts of the Hebrew scriptures, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, not a very good analogy, I think. But I am um, really against this view. The Iliad we have has one or two pieces that just about everybody, not everyone, but I think with two or three exceptions who are real specialists, think are additions. Book 10 and parts of book two. I agree with that. But I emphasize how Homer, uh, as I believe he is, reveals bit by bit running through the poem how the major protagonists are going to die. Then we learn they're going to die young. We learn that they're going to die killed by um, a god, not a man, as it might be. Then we learn which god. Then we learn where. More and more is revealed as the poem runs through a series of um, of books separated at a distance. That kind of careful drip-feeding of information would be very hard to Mm. have been sustained by multiple poets. And then I have a second point, which I particularly emphasize, the sense of of place, which I don't think is fully appreciated. Some people have written well that they think that Homer himself went to Troy. And I've uh, read a lot of this. Um, Of course, there are times when items in the landscape are uh, are one minute or two close to Troy and then they're too far away. He's composing orally. But there is a sustained grip of not just what we would call uh, the topography. Homer has no idea of a map. It all makes sense on, in places on the ground, and that's sustained exactly throughout the poem. But that's very, very important, but also a point of view. Again, very well disentangled by scholar Jenny Strauss-Clay recently in America. Homer is always looking at, uh, mainly, his dominant point is from the Greek camp outwards. And she made uh, some very good points about that. Now, I cannot believe that there were a whole string of poets, all of whom had been and absorbed the interrelation of places around Troy, each one of them, before adding their song in some sort of way to the poem. Um, And these are some of the reasons, and I would say particularly the similes, which run right through the poem, most of it, and they are very much an individual's perception. They are not characterized by the traditional repeated formulae and something I argue very strongly not even the ones again and again about land hunting go back to the distant Mycenaean traditional age Uh, there is much more selection personal choice and personal observation in them it's there that we come possibly closest to one poet and he has a, a pretty consistent way of seeing things. Mm. So I simply accept what I hope would be uh, the starting point of many, many readers until they encounter much scholarship. There is one genius. Then being me, I have a different view. Look, geniuses are incredibly rare. How many have we had? Not many. Uh, we've had Homer. I would include Virgil. We've had Shakespeare and we've had Tolstoy. We're not going to have 15 geniuses all at once, (laughs) all of them somehow pieced together by a 16th genius. So we can't tell where genius A begins and genius T stops. It's not that sort of a poem. But that will, of course, be an argument that's forceful to me and totally unconvincing to critics. Right. Well, that's interesting because a lot of people might say, yeah, but if you're talking about an oral tradition, you get refinements and improvements and and the edges get softened and sort of the the work is it happens over time and you benefit from all of that but like you're saying if you're doing that you might be losing a kind of 
consistency and, and unified point of view. It's not as if we have novels that people improve and improve and improve and and we see that they're written, you know, by committee. We we tend to in fact when there's a, a joint effort at a novel, it usually ends up being kind of lumpy and misshapen. Uh, so it does seem like a single genius doing a long poem is probably uh uh, we have better examples of that happening in human history than the other way around. Yeah, and I, I obviously um, one view um, admirably set out by scholars, particularly at Harvard, with whom I've enjoyed talking on this. They are heir to the great work of Norman Parry in the field, and Parry, influenced by uh, linguists at the time in the 1920s, uh, started by believing in the power of tradition. Hmm. Well, you've got to argue what you know what is tradition. But I think uh, the view that's been held in Harvard and elsewhere that the poem evolved over four or five hundred years of oral transmission is very, very hard for a historian and a comparativist to maintain. Because what we see is that particularly in similes, as time passes, they've got to be clear to the audience listening. And if the audience is totally familiar with, let's say, coinage or with a totally different style of warfare, inevitably those things show through in the comparisons, as when a man hands his friends a coin in return for a jar of wine or something. There was no coinage in Homer's time. There's no coinage, of course, in the poem. I'm taking one of dozens of examples. But nothing has intruded that mm. is at odds with the hypothesis of a date let's say, I believe a little earlier, but around 700 BC. And secondly, the language argument. Again, um, now in America, the great Homeric scholar, Richard Janko, nearly 40 years ago, made, I think, an incontrovertible case for the consistency of Homeric language, first the Iliad, then he thought a gap to the Odyssey, he didn't want to put absolute dates, then a gap to the other early poet we know, Hesiod. But he, he didn't find um, that there were traces of language that would only fit in the 6th century BC. And if the poem is evolving with any element of personal genius, which I think everyone agrees, within a very strong tradition, some of these later features would somehow have intruded. We can see mm -hmm. that from comparative study. Mm -hmm. And they haven't. And there are many discussions of this. Right. Um, there is also another compelling point. We know, and I mean no, K-N-O-W for once, <laughs> <laughs> that the Iliad is earlier than the Odyssey in some form because the Odyssey is aware of it. Hmm. Uh, now, if both poems were being passed on orally, how would we explain the fact that the Odyssey is influenced by the Iliad but the Iliad is never influenced by the Odyssey. Mm, mm -hmm. And the, the, the standard answer, those outside the argument over oral composition and tradition, is the obvious one. The Iliad was basically set as a text, which I think Homer dictated. We can argue what you know, a text meant. Was it used the whole time as a standard script for the poem? All those things can be argued about. Um, and so the Odyssey poet could allude to it. But it didn't then become infected with the Odyssey because it was already pretty much fixed. Mm -hmm. And I don't see how you easily answer that point. Right. There are many others. Uh, but it's such fun to think about it. But I would stress, I have written the first part of my book on these great questions because they are great questions. You know, if we had definitive evidence, we wouldn't be writing about this anymore. And there are two approaches to that. One is to say, oh, God, do we really need more argument about this? You know, we'll never know. Uh, come on, get to the point. You know, why do we enjoy the poem? It doesn't matter who wrote it. But the other is how fascinating that we have this absolutely brilliant poem. I mean, to me, it is not just the greatest epic, but the greatest poem in the world. And we aren't sure mm. about um, the identity of the author, the date and the place. That's fascinating, too. Let's see if we can get nearer to a probable answer. Right. And I belong to the second school. Well, does it change the way that we appreciate or interpret the work if we have a, a working theory of what the author was like, that it was an, an individual and, and that it was an oral poet who performed his work and, and 
I guess, chose to have it transcribed. Does that matter? Does the work stand on its own and or does it does it influence the way that you read the poem? <laughs> but that is a great question. Right. I think it does. Mm-hmm. I, we go back just to take the example, say, of similes. Why do the similes um, expand beyond what we would look for as literate readers, um, precise points of comparison? But once we uh, take on board that the poem is being orally composed, we understand why it's like that. And we also, I think, valuably try to hear it and try to imagine it being orally performed, though we're encountering it as a text. And I think that does make a difference. It also prevents us from dwelling too much on inconsistencies that may show through. As to whether Homer wrote in, let's take an impossible example, Cambridge, Yale, Santa Barbara, or as I believe, uh, the west coast of Asia Minor, possibly on one of the islands, the standard views being somewhere Kios, Smyrna, somewhere around there. No, that, that doesn't matter for enjoyment of the poem. It doesn't matter for enjoyment of the poem. But I, I think something else when I read, which is not fashionable, that these great works of art are themselves evidence of an extraordinary human moral achievement. Mm. And though it doesn't affect the fact that we read them as poems, and obviously all literary criticism is so keen to detach the text as we have it from theories about the author or even the author's intention, some sense of what went into the whole effort of making also enriches us as people. I believe that very profoundly. Mm. Um, and that does not mean that you can't enjoy the Iliad. Of course, I did as a boy. I had no idea of the date or the place. I just read it, wham, like that. And by the age of 17, 18, we had read the whole thing. And then I read it again because it was so amazing. And I've continued reading it again. And really not until... I was in my, well, I said 20 or so, and then later did I start to ask with scholarly prompting questions about his date, his style of composition. But I think we miss something if we don't raise that question. Right. Okay, one more question about Homer the individual, and then we will turn to the Iliad itself. The question a lot of people are probably asking, the other thing that we learn in college is that Homer was blind, or may have Ah. been blind. Uh, What's your view on that? Absolutely no way whatsoever. (laughs) Um, It does, of course, have a consequence often forgotten. If he was blind, he could not have written and he couldn't have read. That's the point isn't always made. It was made in antiquity. Mm. No, no, no. This is an analogy from the blind singer so uh, famous in the Odyssey where the poets perform and one of them is blind, particularly one of them. And later people look back as if Homer himself was blind, assuming he was like the singers in the Odyssey, which is a a leap of uh, unjustified faith. No, no, no. He cannot have been blind. God, read the similes. He had his eyes open every day. It's absolutely astounding what he noticed. He noticed, I make points, about the smallest details of nature, about aspects of um, the life of a poppy or a tree that are really, you know, are, are remarkable. He's the sharpest-eyed person on the planet. Yeah. Okay. So another way to get at this question of how powerful the poem is and and what it does to us as readers is to to look at your teaching career. And you've taught the poem for decades. I think you first taught it in 1973. Do your students respond the same way in the 21st century as they did in 1973? Have they changed? Have Has their attitude toward the poem changed? Or is, is it mainly the same? Well, I can answer this from a narrow English perspective. Good yeah. question. One big change, thank God. In 1973, um, I was not teaching women. Right. The college was entirely all men. Uh, now, wonderfully and quite correctly, uh, we actually have the, uh, the whole of humanity instead of half of it. Yeah. Um, secondly, in many, but not all cases, their grasp of Greek is less. Mm. But over the years, I would say, here is what I've done, which was done for me immortally as a schoolboy. I asked them to bring along their Greek texts of Homer, and then I translate simultaneously from my Greek text for them whilst they follow the flow in Greek. 
Um, okay, they don't catch everyone, and perhaps I don't, but we keep going, and I show them that it is perfectly possible to go forwards at speed without going into the meaning of every single use of the little particle per, and we get a sense of the poem. Um, those whom I taught in the early 70s are kind enough at times to say that this is something they really remembered and really touched them mm. and inspired them to go on. Yeah. The last group I taught in 2016 to 17, I warned them that when we get to some of the books, to six, to nine, 18, and then particularly 22, 24, the ones I would choose, it's very hard for me to read them. I'm bound to cry. By now I'm 70, and I can't help it. I'm not manufacturing it. Um, when we got to six, I'm afraid I cried. Um, and they were slightly nervous at first. <laughs> They then invited along their friends. Instead of disappearing, the audience grew. And by the end, they were all crying too. Mm. And we walked out into the night in December, having got through to the end of book 24. We were really shaken. And I managed just to say to them, because we were so upset, that the world will never quite seem the same to you again. And we walked out on that dark evening, and I knew that it never would seem the same. Uh, How seldom you can say that. Perhaps at the end of War and Peace, before the final chapter, <laughs> where you learn that wasn't all the bed of roses being married, uh, but Pierre and Cash's final, uh, um, their final great encounter um, and, and the dinner that follows, you feel something of the same. But otherwise, I don't know. And it, it changes the way I see the world. And it changes the way they see the world. And when I meet them still, which I do, many of them, bless them, they say exactly the same is true. Right. And this is what makes me so sad. It's not difficult to learn Greek um, to the level to be able to read this poem. And you have to pay money largely in England. You have to go to private schooling in order to do it. And here is Homer. He couldn't read. He couldn't write. We don't know where he came from. He had been practicing in a tradition and mastering it and improving it since I think the age of three or four, like a pianist. It's absolutely wonderful. It's the great gift to the human race, and yet it isn't presented to people in school. Mm. Oh, for heaven's sake. Can we get it through translation, or do we need to read it in the original? Uh, you need to read it in the original. Um, you you can, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm not the best person about the translation. I was lucky. Money was spent on me. I had great teachers, yeah. and I had a knack for it. I accept all that. Uh, but thank God. Yeah, there are translations. There are ever more translations. If you want an accurate guide in prose to the book, I wonder quite what you feel about the Iliad when you read it. There's no doubt that the uh, fine classical scholar Martin Hammond in the Penguin translation is the best prose translation mm. now of the Iliad. If you want to have an idea of what goes on and the distribution of scenes and so on, you couldn't do better. And he does his very best translating. Right. Ah, uh, you're going to ask me for poetry. But what do we say about poetry? I like, I, I mean, I, I have to say, I'm afraid, and I know they'd be only too happy to hear it. I don't need them, thank goodness. Um, and like them, the translators, I stick with Homer. But recent ones, I admire Peter Green, mm. um, based now in Texas, in his older age, a, a tremendous classicist with a fine sense of language. I think he's done a very good job. Uh, I would look for Peter Green, and I would look back, like many, to the older translation of Richmond Lattimore. Mm. Those are the two I think I would go to. Yeah. But you, it's wonderful, but it's not Homer. <laughs> so the tears that you shed is it's part in part based on what's happening in the story, but it's also the beauty of the Greek. Is that? Is, oh, yeah, overwhelming. Um, yeah. It's so easy to forget. I find so often, and people I hope might find it from my book, the things that you sort of accept are never put into words. Um, are put into words by somebody. You think, yeah, I always knew that, but I never quite looked at it. How much of the Iliad is speech? Other people's speeches moving very, very fast, implicitly often characterizing them. And the flow of a speech in Greek. Ah, oh, heavens, you know, people go on about the invention of rhetoric. It's just putting labels and names on things. Um, all the tricks and the flow and the skill is there in Homer in ways that... Um, would take, I think, still another 50, 100 years to unpick and present. 
um, and I'm sure it will be done. Uh, that's very, very hard to get in translation. Right. And then there are the famous adjective and noun combinations, the wine-dark sea, mm. um, the many wild Odysseus. Well, do we ever call somebody many wild? Mm -hmm. No, we don't. I mean, cunning Odysseus or resourceful Odysseus. Um, and, you know, people have called Artemis the goddess of the loud halloo. Well, I mean, whoever, whoever has heard of that? Um, and if you come up with these phrases in a poetry or translation, you stop with a bump and you think, come on, pull the other one. This is like some sort of arcane rubbish. It isn't in Greek. It's not everyday Greek in any way. It's an artificial dialect, specially used and pioneered by the, the epic poets even before Homer. It's very, very difficult to render all this. But without it, it can become a bit flat. Right. Um, when I was first writing a book, I tried to alter the proofs too much. And my publishers, it was about Alexander and is still in print many years later. How about that? 50 years later. Shut me up in the, uh, the publisher's room and told me for two days to go through the corrections in the proofs and cut them by half. So I sat locked up <laughs> in this office and I found on the shelf a little book called the story of Anna Karenina for beginners. And it was about 12 pages long. Yeah. I love the book. So I read it and it was absolutely hilariously banal. It was so stupid. <laughs> you know, and, you know, a woman gets off a train, <laughs> meets right. the cavalry officer, falls in love with him and then throws herself under the train. <laughs> um, and there is a game, I gather, I've played it sometimes, called Make Very Short Abbreviations of the Plots of Masterpieces. Right, um, right. You know, let's have Hamlet in four lines. <laughs> I, I think that um, uh, you can cut the Iliad down and present it as a, a sort of story, you know, um, man loses his girlfriend, goes into a rage, withdraws, yeah. <laughs> loses his best friend, savages the killer and gives the body back. Well, you know, God help us. One thing I, I've come to notice and feel is Homer anticipates film in so many ways. Uh, um, yeah. uh, many of the techniques of film without any clue of film, they're already there in Homer. That's right. fascinating to me, too. Right. Well, because in delivering the poem, there isn't a lot of, especially if you're delivering it orally, you're focused on action, you're focused on conduct, you're focused mm. on sort of the suggestions of psychology more than a deep interior monologue or all of the things that in novels are hard to film. You wouldn't have that in an oral delivery. Now, there's that, and there's the very clever intercutting um, uh, when the scenes of battle. Um, very, very familiar. This was much in my mind when I had the job of being historical consultant to Oliver Stone mm. on the Alexander film, and we had to do the battle. And actually, we talked about it. Oliver liked Homer very much. Um, yeah. And um, the way that film directors have to cut from shot to shot, and then the fadeaway shot, you could equate sometimes with similes, and similar scenes and much else. And of course, I do say in the book, and it'll amuse and possibly annoy everybody, Homer is the inventor of moving pictures. In the absolutely amazing section in book 18, where the god Hephaestus goes to prepare new armor for Achilles, and you get these unsurpassed scenes in world literature, where the poet describes for us as if looking on at Hephaestus, the moving scenes he's making in metal. And he's making pictures, but they go far beyond what you could just freeze in hard bronze or silver. They, they, they have a life and a dynamic and a flow and a sequence that you could only get in film. Homer had invented moving pictures, is my view. Right. Um, and before that, just to keep you on your toes, he had certainly is the first person to attest the idea of robots, He's already there. He's, he's got them all organized. Um, Hephaestus <laughs> has robots that run around his uh, divine workshop. And on top of that, just to cap it, Homer also the first to express the idea of artificial intelligence, because some of the robots can speak and talk and think and run around like that. They're all there. I mean, the guy, as I told you, he's a complete genius. Um, and I, 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 he could have done anything. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I asked you to travel back to 1973, but if we were to travel back farther and go back a few thousand years to people listening 
in the earliest days of the Iliad, how different is setting aside the language or assuming that we can know the language, uh, how differently are those readers or listeners experiencing the poem? What's changed about humanity or what's different about the ancient Greek listener that would change the way that they heard the poem? Oh, uh, that, that, is, that is a really wonderful question. Um, maybe you should try to answer it, Jack. You posed it in a book. Um, one question is, uh, were women in the audience? Well, we don't know where the poem was first composed. I'm one of uh, those who believe that it was certainly composed at that length for a festival, a festival in honor of the gods in some way, or one god in particular. And I think women would have been present. Secondly, many of these in the audience knew battle. And I mean by battle, mm. I don't mean war. I don't mean the horror of sitting in a trench somewhere on the, uh, in eastern Ukraine with long-range missiles being sent or drones that suddenly kill you. And you press a button and you fire something far away against people you don't see. I am meaning straightforward battle of a kind we understood only with bayonets, yeah. whereas it might be Russians are coming at you and you have to run them through. It's either you or them. Uh, right. And this is what the audience knew much more, I think, uh, than, than we did. And physical strength, been... physical courage. Yeah, yeah. Well, they understood it. You know, obviously Homer emphasizes, people don't always remember, the heroes are not as men nowadays, but they are not some fantasy creatures from sci-fi. They're not adventure heroes in some kind of video game. They're still alive to the audience. They're on the edges of what they can imagine and engage with. So I think their experiences of war, very different to some of us, though of course in the world at the moment, alas, not all of us, their experience of face-to-face -face battle would be important, whether or not women are present, their attitude to slaves, they're just accepted. If you lose in battle, the women are all enslaved. That's what happens. Whereas now, of course, we read and think, oh, God, slaves, there's a mention of slaves, and that, that holds us up in some way. I just said very important. And of course, the whole question of the gods, is, I don't think they even raise the question of do we believe in the gods? Uh, I don't think that's the right question. They just assumed the gods were there, and this was a brilliant presentation of them. Yeah. Obviously, uh, for poetic um, effect, the gods say this, that, and the other, and don't quite have all the honors they do in everyday life. But they are not a separate fantasy area. Not a fantasy area. I don't know if you ever saw the film of Jason and the Argonauts. Um, they were really well done. The gods lived in heaven, and they would sometimes uh, clear the surface of a table and look down on men on high. And you knew that the filmmaker was inventing gods for the film. It's brilliantly done. I can't remember who made the film. That's not at all how the audience are assuming. They take the whole picture on board. It's one that they comprehend. Yeah. Um, but there's much more if I had about a year to think over your question that I would end up answering. And I would also emphasize something else, that the values in the poem mm. are not just straightforward values um, and the actions they entail of all the listeners either. That's a mistaken reading. The heroes are not as men nowadays, but they are within their comprehension. Mm. Right. That's what that was the next question I was going to ask you. So we run through some differences, but the obviously the poem has its staying power because of some similarities and it mm -hmm. seems like because we recognize the human qualities of courage, anger, uh, you know, jealousy and, and some mm. of the other themes. Revenge. That, revenge. Like, okay. yeah. yeah. You know, people go on about how it's a shame culture. And honor is material honor and how alien from us. I must say two things. I've seen fantastic aggression uh, between colleagues in the, in the cloistered world of classical studies where they, <laughs> one of them has tried to shame the others writing a vile review of their work. <laughs> or every day on Wall Street, go and work in one of the big um, sort of, um, zoological parks of financial monsters. Um, and they're, they're appallingly um, aggressive um, about their reputation, their shame, and their material value. 
Um, the idea that it's all somehow far away from us, decent, very honorable, beautifully caring local community-based distributors from a food bank, um, it is, but we're not the only people on the planet. Right. Oh, okay, that's, a, I think, a good place to end it. The book is called Homer and his Iliad. Robin Lane Fox, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Well, thank you so much for putting questions. If you put them to me before I began, the book would be even sharper. It might be even longer. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Robin Lane Fox for joining me. That's a good book for that appreciator of Homer in your life or to pick up for yourself this holiday season. And my thanks to Catherine Howe. If you have any witches or pirates or witch lovers or pirate fans in your life, the same goes for them. Treat them to some books and watch the gratitude roll your way. Speaking of which... I'm very grateful to all of you for rolling my way today and spending some time on the other end of this podcast. We'll try to do even better shows next time. We've got one with a late-in-life literature enthusiast coming up soon, and how about Sylvia Plath? She is always a popular subject for a show. Well, we've got a fascinating take on her from our old friend Carl Rollison, the serial biographer who's been immersed in her diaries and notebooks looking at each and every day of Sylvia Plath's life. So please do subscribe to the podcast and let your friends know that it's finally time for them to jump on board the History of Literature podcast train, too. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>